1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to go as far as 13 tonight, but I'm only going to read to verse 5 to start with because we're going to take a little bit of time to break that down and unpack that first. Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is letting them know, by this point in his letter, he brags on them at the beginning, but he's already heard from Timothy when he starts writing the letter to them in chapter 1. But at this point in the letter, he lets them know a little bit more behind the scenes things. He said, when we couldn't take it anymore because we hadn't heard and Facebook hadn't been invented yet and there was no Twitter and there was no cell phones... When we couldn't take it anymore, we sent Timothy to go back. When we knew we could be left there alone, we sent Timothy to go check on you. And he says a lot of things here that we're going to break down, but one of the things we're going to spend some time looking at is at the end of our section that we just read. We'll come back to some things prior to that in just a little bit. But he said, our concern was that you had been would have been moved by these afflictions and persecutions and our labor would have been in vain because Satan would have won. Now, listen closely. And we're going to go into something that we kind of know, but we're going to go a lot deeper. Notice Paul's concern for them and his understanding that not all who say they believe are for real and truly saved. And what we're going to do now, though, is we're going to go to another level. We've talked about this over the years. If you've ever heard any of my teaching, you'll know that the Bible's very clear that just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are. There's evidence of the Spirit. But I want to take it deeper now, and I'm going to tell you right now, I hope that through what we're about to do, you are actually encouraged. It's going to freak you out. But you're actually encouraged by the fact that when it comes to sharing the gospel, this is a bigger thing than you're capable of handling. Actually, in the book of Corinthians, Paul actually makes this statement. He said, when we share the gospel to some, we're the aroma of Christ. To others, we're the smell of death. And he says, who is equal to such a task? Then, of course, he says, praise be to God who gives us the ability to be equal to such a task. I'm going to say something to you. My prayer is that as we look at these scriptures tonight that talk about the tempter coming and trying to mess up people's being saved, that you actually, instead of being scared away from sharing the gospel, it'll free you up to share the gospel more because you'll realize it has less and less to do with you. I know every one of you have thought at least one time, maybe, if not many, that when it comes to sharing the gospel, you're not good at it. The fact that you're even looking at how good you do shows how very little you know about how salvation works. Let me just lay some foundation for you scripturally, and I'm going to show you some scriptures that talk about this even more. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8, he said, The wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it's going or where it's coming from. And so it is of those who are born of the Spirit. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us fully understand how God does his salvation. We know that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ and his sinless life. 
his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. We know that if you even are seeking God, God's begun his work in your life, yet everyone's responsible. There's this whole conundrum of how this all works. And because of the fact that we feel like we're we're better at it than others or others are better at it than us show that we don't understand how this salvation thing works. And I want to just tell you, and we're going to look at this more tonight, there is a spiritual battle going on right now when it comes to even sharing the gospel. And whether or not people hear or not, there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm that's way bigger than you. And with that in mind, you need to just rest in the fact that God's word is powerful and God's the one who's going to win the battle when it comes to this. And man's responsible for whether or not they respond. And like Paul said, this is the Apostle Paul. We weren't even sure if our labor was in vain or not. Why? Because we were afraid the tempter had come and had messed it up. Go to Matthew chapter 13. It's a passage of scripture we all know well, Matthew 13, verses 18 through 22. It's a passage we know well, but I want us to look at it from a different angle tonight. I want us to look at the angle of the attacks against the seed. And Jesus has already told the parable of the sower. The disciples came and asked him for explanation. And then he says in verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes, this is Matthew 13, starting in verse 18. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and of the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. Have you ever noticed the attack on the seed? It's scattered out, and when some people hear it, They don't quite understand it. And sometimes Satan comes and just quickly snatches it away. Others hear the word and they respond apparently, but they don't have real salvation. And when persecution comes because of the word, or then there's other seed we see that uh, responds, but the cares of this world and deceitfulness of wealth choke it. By the way, who is the one, according to the first John, that is actually fighting against us when it comes to persecution and the cares of this world? It's Satan. Those are further attacks of Satan. He's going to come to someone that just prayed a prayer who thinks, well, I've given my life to Jesus. Everything's going to be wonderful now. And then not long after that, their mama dies. Or they actually went and told their family, hey, I just gave my life to Jesus. And the family all says, well, you're out. You've lost your inheritance. We're cutting you off. And there are some that go, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for that. And I just want you to understand, and we're going to look at this more. The Bible's very clear that as we go out and tell people about Jesus, there's been a spiritual battle, and there will continue to be a spiritual battle going on for their souls. And it's way bigger than us. So what are we going to do? Just trust in the Word of God and just share it and pray. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 
again, we're going to be looking at these scriptures that talk about the spiritual battle that's going on. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 10. Again, John's writing to Christians, but as you're going to see by the end of these verses, is he? The answer is yes, kind of. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, as he's writing to Christians who encourage him, the fact that we're children of God, and that's what we are now, and when we see him, we're going to be like him. He also then says, oh, by the way, there's also those of you that I'm writing to in the church that aren't really of the Father. You're not really children of God. He goes, we're, we are children of, the, of the God. And then at the end of the session, he says, and there's a difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. Let me encourage some of you, though, when he talks about a practice of sinning, he's not talking the fact that you, you sin can, over and over. No, no, he's talking about people that actually that's their lifestyle. Every one of us. Anybody say, well, as a Christian, I don't sin anymore. Well, you're lying. The Bible says the truth's not in you. But at the same time, when you do sin, you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know how it grieves the Holy Spirit. You know how you don't want to do it again, even though you know you may still struggle with that temptation. But for those who say, you know what, I'm forgiven. I can just do this stuff. It's okay. And that, there were people that were teaching that in the church. And those people had crept into the church. And that's why John's dealing with that. If you think you can make a practice of sinning, you're, you're of the devil. Well, how come, as John's writing to the church... To encourage them, he's also warning that the devil might have gotten in there as well. Because he does. He's not only trying to hinder people coming to faith, he's also trying to hinder people growing in their faith. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 6. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And, and, and he says, even if our gospel is, is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who's that? That's Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, look, when we share the gospel, if it's veiled, Satan's blinded. By the way, anybody feel equipped to go tell people about Jesus now? No, actually, we feel less equipped in one sense, but hopefully you're going to be encouraged to the fact of get over yourself. It's not about how good you are at it. It's the truth of the word of God. And that's why Paul said we didn't want to preach anything or use any kind of cunning or any fancy words or try to trick people into it. And he goes, you can examine us and find out. He says, listen, he said, we just want to preach Christ and him crucified. That's where the power is. And if you understand it, God opened your eyes. And if you reject it, Satan blinded you to it. Your flesh doesn't want to be a part of it. Well, well go there real quick. Go to John chapter 3. In the famous passage that you all have seen at football games, keep reading. John chapter 3, verses 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here in this passage, is it Satan that's blinding them or is their own flesh blinding them and their own evil deeds blinding them? It's all of the above. Some people know the truth. They know the light. But in order to acknowledge the fact that they're a sinner, they'll have to admit they're a sinner. And they don't want to do that. Give you a little taste of what I'm talking about. You husbands, I'm not asking you to, and wives don't elbow your husbands right now either. There have been a time or two in your marriage you knew your wife was right. But you didn't. I saw that face, by the way. You did not want to admit it. You knew they were right. But you did not want to admit it. Now, there might be lots of reasons. They might have nagged you about it, and you didn't want to positively reinforce that behavior. But that's another discussion for another time. But let me just say this to you. There are people that know the truth, but they're unwilling to acknowledge that they need it. It's like the person that knows they're sick, but they don't want to go to the doctor. Because if I don't go to the doctor, I'm not sick. They even know they probably have cancer, but if I don't go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't say it's cancer, I don't. You know those kind of people? It does them a lot of good, doesn't it? This is a spiritual battle that's going on. And Paul said, we didn't know. We didn't know. Oh, we saw some responses, and it looked like you were saved, but we weren't sure. So we sent Timothy to go back and see how things were going. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. Let me give you one more. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 into chapter 3, verse 2. Sorry, chapter 6, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 5. We'll start in verse 18, actually. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 into chapter 6, verse 2.
get to 2 Corinthians here. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Look at what Paul says there. He said, look, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. At the time Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. Now, those of us who have understood this and responded and said yes to the gospel and received salvation and the light is shown in our hearts, we now are ambassadors for Christ working with him on his behalf. Be reconciled to God. And then he says this, don't receive the grace of God in vain. God did all this work. Don't make it a waste of time. That's why in the book of Hebrews, it talks about those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Who've, they understand God's opened their eyes, but if they reject it, good luck being brought back to repentance. Once you understand and you say no. On top of that, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and following, if we deliberately go on sinning, there is no more sacrifice for sin, but a, a serious judgment especially for those who have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant which sanctified them. Now, they weren't saved and lost it. Remember, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. That's why the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, all sin is forgiven except one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's that? Well, that's when the Spirit of God draws you to him and you reject it. That's the only thing that Jesus' death didn't already cover. Oh, by the way, if you reject that and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit by not responding when the Spirit of God draws you and you die in that condition, all those other sins that Jesus paid for, you're now accountable for them because you rejected the only payment for your sin. By the way, how does God save? Does, does faith come first, a regeneration, and then we believe? Or is it all man or is it part God and part man or all God and no man? Don't go there. Stop trying to figure it out. Preach the gospel. Share the message and understand that there is a spiritual battle going on. So you got family members that need to be saved. You got children that are away and you're not even sure if they're saved. They might have even prayed a prayer when they were a kid. You, you're wondering where they're at. You got grandchildren you'd love to see Jesus. Folks, let me tell you something. Maybe instead of worrying about how to word it perfectly to them, you would spend more time praying so that the power of God be released in the spiritual realm in their lives. Even with a humble attitude that says, Lord, I might not even be the one that you want to use to bring them to salvation. Put the people in their path. Do whatever you need to do. This is a spiritual battle going on. And Father, I'm asking that you would do something in the spiritual realm to bring them to you. And be ready to speak if he gives you an opportunity. Do you understand? Stop worrying about how good you are at it whether or not you're successful, understand this is bigger than you, it's bigger than me, but at the same time, we have been given this responsibility, aren't we? haven't we? Those of us who have been saved, we've been given the responsibility to be ambassadors with him on his behalf.
and just don't worry about how good you are at it. It really doesn't have a lot to do with you. If, if you're honest, he doesn't even need you. And have you ever thought about the fact that Paul said, Jesus went through all this to reconcile mankind to himself, and then he's given the message to us. That sounds dumb, doesn't it? Why would you go through all of that, Jesus, and then hand it over to people like us? So that he gets all the glory. Satan, by the way, uses many ways of stopping the spread of the gospel. Listen closely. One of them, there's many, one of them is persecution. Now, this is something that in America we haven't had to deal with as much as other parts of the world, but as you are already starting to experience, it's ramping up in our day. Um, as you know, the Bible's real clear, and I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick. The Bible's real clear that as believers in Jesus Christ, because of God's eternal plan and his promises to the forefathers, the church should be pro-Israel. That's a no-brainer. Unfortunately, there are many Christians that say the opposite, but unfortunately, they're not reading their Bibles. They're just thinking with their flesh and thinking with their politics. But listen closely to me. When I say pro-Israel, I'm not saying anti-Palestinian. I've heard too many Christians who have seen what's gone on in the Israel-Hamas war and the atrocities and what Hamas has done, and they're saying, when is God going to judge that? Look what they did to those babies and those children and wives and grandmothers. and Folks, when we're in the tribulation period, and I don't believe the church will be here, but when the saints are going to be killed during the tribulation period, during that time they're crying out, Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? But we're still in the age of the church age, in the age of grace. You know, God still loves the Palestinians just as much as he loves the Jews. We should be praying. And I, so when I say pro-Israel, and when I say pray for both, I'm not saying ceasefire. Because actually the Bible's clear, sometimes there's a time for war. But what I'm praying, and I want us all to be praying, is that God would bring the Jews and the Palestinians, the Gentiles, to Jesus through this as well. He uses all things to bring glory to himself and to bring people to himself. But he loves, he loves the Ishmaelites as well. They're descendants of Abraham. But it's easy for us to get caught up and lose sight of what the scripture says. We're still in that time period where Stephen, as they were putting him to death and persecuting him for his faith, where he said, Father, don't hold it against him. We're not in that time period yet of judgment and wrath. We're still in the age of grace. Year of the Lord's favor. And keep that in mind. But listen closely, I'm going to show you from Scripture that Paul and Peter and Jesus said, go back to 1 Thessalonians 3, look at verses 3 and 4, that we were destined for persecution. 1, Peter, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are what? Destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Go to Acts chapter 9. Actually, for the sake of time, I'll just quote Acts 9. Go to Acts 14. And while you're going to Acts 14, I'll tell you about Acts 9. In Acts 9, Peter, uh, Paul gets saved, and God tells Ananias, who's going to heal him of his blindness, God tells Ananias, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. First thing he says really about Paul's ministry, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. Go to Acts 14, though. Look at verses 19 through 22. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city he had made, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What was the message of the gospel? You put your faith in Jesus, and once you do, you've just put a target on your back. That's not the gospel we hear preached today, is it? No, we hear a gospel that says, pray your prayer, go to heaven, you get to be rich, you get to pray, and you'll never be sick. And we've, we've changed what the scripture says. And I'm going to show you more scriptures that I'm going to get you to a point where you're going to get sick of it, but I have a reason for why I'm doing this. Go to Acts 5. Look at verses 40 through 42. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. And when they had called the in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the apostles were brought in before the same group of men, the Sanhedrin, that had put Jesus to death. And they were told, don't preach in his name anymore. And they said, well, you tell us whether it's right to listen to man or God. They told them, we told you, don't do this anymore. And they beat them and sent them out. And when they had been beaten, they actually started high-fiving each other. Guys, that's evidence that we're, Christ, we're of Christ. We're being persecuted because of him. And he said that would happen in John 15. He even told them. He said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I heard this week about a man in another country who had been hired as a commissioner of a major sport, like, like being a commissioner of the NFL here in America. He was hired as a commissioner of a major sport in another country. A day after he had been hired, he was fired because after he was hired, somebody did a little checking and found out that he went to a church that believed that abortion was wrong. And because of his faith, he lost his job, a very high paying job. The new Speaker of the House. Do you notice what's going on now? He's under attack. His wife's under attack because of belief in the truth of the Word of God. It's going to happen. And folks, it's going to increase in the days in which we're, we're living. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to handle it? Are you going to say, God, why is this happening to me? Or are you going to become one of those people who say, well, I won't say anything because I don't want to be persecuted? No, no, no. Folks, we're destined for this. Now, we shouldn't try to be offensive. We shouldn't try to be jerks, but we shouldn't be surprised when we share the truth lovingly, gently, that it's going to cause problems for us. The early church, when the Jewish believers got saved, they were kicked out of the synagogue. They lost everything. They lost their jobs. Their family disowned them. They lost their retirements. They lost everything. That's why they shared everything with each other and met in each other's homes and they had nothing. But they gave it all up to follow Jesus. And there may be a day when I'm not here because I believe the Bible to be true. And when I say certain things are sin that the world doesn't want to accept are sin nowadays, they may make a law that says I can't preach the Bible. Guess what I'm going to keep doing? I'm going to keep preaching the Bible. And I may end up in prison. 
By the way, I'm not even done. Go to 1 Peter 5. I want you to see this from the scriptures, because I think in America we've kind of numbed ourselves to this biblical truth that's been here all along. 1 Peter 5, look at verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Jump back to chapter 2 now, 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 20 through 25. Let's look at some more. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see there? Here he, now Paul says we were destined for persecution. Here he says we've been called to it. Well, Jim, I know that Jesus said in this world we'll have tribulation. I just wanted a couple of days off. Well, you remember, Jesus also said that each day has enough trouble of its own. So when you try to live a Christian life in this world in which you don't make any waves because someone might be offended. We live in a cancel culture and we don't want to be canceled. When you do this, what you're really saying is, I hope Jesus, I want Jesus to be wrong about this tribulation thing and tribulation every day. Do you know our churches went through a period, and some are still doing that, when we tried to design our services to be appealing to the world? We changed our preaching style to shorter and less scripture because those people out there, they, they don't want a long sermon. They don't understand the Bible, so we need to make it more palatable. We changed our music style so it would be more like their kind of music. And we, in our desire to have the world like us, we stopped looking like Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't a jerk, but he shared the truth of the Father and his word, and that didn't make him very popular. So, folks, I want to challenge you individually. Let me give you one more. 2 Timothy 3, before I challenge you, go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 14. And to be nice to you, I haven't even shared with you all of them. We haven't even gotten into the fact that we're in a spiritual battle, according to Ephesians 6, fighting against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 10 through 14. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, 
My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Listen to verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not might. We're destined for this. To this we've been called. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And then, of course, he goes on and says, all Scripture is able to walk you through this. Listen to me, folks. Is this what we hear in our churches today? No, we want to fill the pews. But Jesus, when the church today is trying to get bigger crowds, Jesus thinned the crowds. Do you still want to sign up? Now that I've shared what it really means to give your life to Jesus, I haven't talked about heaven. I haven't talked about golden streets. No more tears. All that's true. But Jesus himself made very, very clear. Well, let me put it to you this way. You ever watch those commercials for the Army and the Navy and the Marines and all that? They don't show boot camp. They show you shooting rockets and flying planes and landing helicopters and going overseas and seeing the world. They don't show what you got to go through to get to that. But Jesus showed boot camp. Go to Luke 14. Listen to what Jesus says here. Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, are you comfortable? Is the air conditioning the way you like it? Is it too hot, too cold? Let me know. Are the seats comfy? Are we singing the kind of songs you like to sing? Is the sermon not too long? By the way, is that what it says here? No, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus turned to a crowd of people and he said, hey, before you get too comfortable, you really want to follow me? You have to put me first above your family, above your plans, above everything that you want. I have to be first. And if that means I choose where you live, you have to be okay with that. If I choose when you die, you have to be okay with that. If I choose how your health's going to go, because I control everything, whether you like it or not, and, you're, and you have to be okay with that. You have to be willing to renounce everything and say, my life is yours. 
Oh, there are a lot of people that love to say, I believe. But then when persecution comes, or trouble, or God doesn't do things the way they thought he should, they went away. They didn't have real root. Or others say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's one of the many things in my life. Then the cares of this world and wealth choked it. Wasn't really saved. But the seed that fell on the good soil, it produced a crop. Now let me ask you a question. The seed that fell on the good soil, was Satan trying to blind their eyes too? Yes. Was Satan trying to allow persecution in their life as well? Definitely. Was Satan trying to tempt them with the pleasures of the flesh and money and the things of this world? Yes. But those that truly stick are the ones who are truly saved. Now, this is, this is the coolest part. Remember how we began this by saying that one of the things Satan uses to, to, to stop the spread of the gospel is persecution? What does the Bible, and we've already studied James, so you better get this right or we have to go back. What does the Bible say that God uses to increase our faith and confirm our salvation? Persecution and trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face these. Second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following, verse 6 especially said, even though we're praising God for this glorious salvation that we've been given and it's kept in heaven for us, for a little time, if necessary, we've received Trials, But these trials have come to prove our faith genuine. What God allowed Satan to do in each of our lives, God's going to use to make us stronger. It's actually going to confirm our faith. Folks, I'm looking around at people I've known for a long time, and I know some of your stories, some of you I don't know, but some of you haven't had an easy life. Some of you have had opportunity, and maybe even now are still under things that make, would make a normal person say, you know what, I'm not following Jesus anymore. This is hard. I've got a wife that doesn't believe, or I've got a husband that doesn't believe, or I've got family that doesn't understand it. And, and you know what? <sighs> well, it was interesting. Years ago, I uh, had the privilege of leading this one man to the Lord. And the day after he got saved, this is in Chicago, he had a nervous breakdown. He ends up in the hospital. And I go to visit him. And he said, why did this happen the day after I gave my life to Jesus. I would have thought that I wouldn't have this now that I'm saved. And I said, you're looking at it backwards. Aren't you glad that you got Jesus now in you to walk you through this? He actually blessed you. If your salvation's real, he came to live within you the day before he knew it was going to happen so he can be there and walk you through this. By the way, if you walk away because he didn't do things the way you thought he would, we're going to find out whether or not your salvation's real. Folks, there are some of you that look out at you. The reason you're here is because of Jesus. It's because he began a good work and he's finishing it. That's the good news. Those of us who are truly saved, we're being held on to by God. Go to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. Let's look at some encouragement now. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who's doing the work? He is. But remember, Paul didn't know if those people that had responded to the gospel while he was there that brief time there in Thessalonica, if their salvation was real. He knew they were going to face persecutions. He knew there were going to be people coming in saying, Paul is a phony, Paul's in it for the money, he's trying to deceive you. He knew that there were going to be people that were going to be beaten and others going to be losing uh, relationships and jobs and finances and all sorts of things because of their faith. He knew all that stuff was going to happen. He knew that Satan was going to come and pluck away the seed from those who didn't understand. He knew persecution was going to come. He knew the cares of this world were going to come. And he had no idea as to whether or not that work was in vain or not in vain. So when he couldn't take it anymore, he sent Timothy to go find out. Timothy had just come back and given report. And he says, wow. Go to 2 Thessalonians, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 3 again. Look at verses 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13. Listen to what he says. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul shares how excited he is to hear that their faith was real and that they hadn't believed the lies of Paul's opponents, how they had longed to see Paul again, just as Paul longed to see them. But Paul also shared that their standing firm in the Lord actually was an encouragement to them in the midst of their struggles. Folks, you may not realize that. I hope you do. But how much we need to realize how much we need each other, especially in this world that is so against Christ and therefore against us. In this world, that's get, there's going to be less and less well, actually, there has always been less. The Bible says those who go on the narrow road are few. Our church has been full of members, but that doesn't mean we've been full of Christians. And there's going to be, it's going to be harder to pretend to be a Christian in the days to come. And you're going to see attendances drop. You're going to see real Christians becoming evident. But as this happens, we're going to need each other more and more. That's why Hebrews 10 tells us to, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. And what an encouragement we are to each other. I've told you before, but I'll say it to you again. Those of you that come every week and sit and put up with me, you're an encouragement to me. I hope I'm an encouragement to you in some way. But I just had something really cool happen. Well, I've been on a preaching ship trip for 10 days. Just got back Sunday night late. We went to Galax. You've heard me talk about Galax a lot. I go there twice a year, have for 10 years now. Every May and every October for 10 years, I go and preach for a week, and it's just a fun fellowship time. Uh, that church considers us part of their family. My wife and I are in their church picture directory because they consider us part of the church. It's really kind of cool, and we eat together, and we, we hang out, and we share the word, and we play golf. We, but what an encouragement we are to each other because for 10 years now, they're standing firm in the Lord. Oh, we've seen some people fall by the wayside. But the ones who continue, man, what an encouragement. And then something happened Friday and Saturday 
of last week, which was a first for me. I got to preach in a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, called Steel Creek Church. It's a big church, but they have a Saturday service, and they added a Friday night service because I was coming in. And the pastor of that Saturday service, who's one of the staff members at this big church, give you an idea how big it is. This church put on by itself on Saturday, all from noon to three, uh, an international food festival. And everybody that cooked food and provided food were all members of the church from 29 different nations. Over 5,000 people in the Charlotte area came to this food festival. They had shuttles bringing people back and forth from parking lots everywhere. They set it up in the back parking lot, and there were, I don't know how many tents, because some nations had more than one tent, and they had food from Ethiopia and Puerto Rico and Africa, and, and you just name it, 29 different nations, and all of those nations were from this church. And for five bucks a person, you could eat until you were sick. I'm serious. And some of the best food. I mean, where you get food from those countries. Free sodas and water and whatever. And they were sharing the gospel at each of their places. They had prayer tents and it was, they had music playing. It was just an amazing thing. And then Saturday, Friday night and Saturday night, I got to preach in this one part of their property. It's a big property. And they actually have this big, like, it looks like a circus tent. I got to preach in that area there. But the pastor of that church, he was hired while I was pastor in Chicago as the youth pastor when I pastored in Chicago. He was a Moody Bible student, he and his wife, Katie, and at the time didn't have any kids. They now have three, and they're all full grown. And when Wade got up to introduce me, he threw up on the screen something that made me weep. He showed the picture of his ordination service from back in Chicago 25 years ago, maybe more, where we ordained him to the gospel ministry. And this picture of him and his wife kneeling as we all gathered around. And as I looked up at that picture and thought, man, I was fat. But no, I didn't. I, I, I looked up at that picture. I literally started to cry. You know why? I know all those guys. Not only do I know all those guys, some of them are in heaven. And all of them are still walking with the Lord because we stayed in contact. And then Wade gets up and just starts bragging on me as he introduces me. And then when he sits down, I brag on him. Because you know Romans 12 verse 10 says that we're to outdo each other in showing honor. And when I was done, I finally told the church, you came to hear a message. You didn't hear to come here to hear me and Wade kiss each other. But what an encouragement it was that those years of pastoring in Chicago weren't in vain. Folks, you are an encouragement to others as you continue in the faith. Paul says, you're our joy, our crown. Remember we looked at that? You're our crown, our joy. We're going to look at more of that later on when we come back next week. But that's why in Acts 2, we're not going to go there because of time. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 through 35. Acts 2, 42 through 47, Acts 4, 32 through 35. They lived life together. They didn't just meet in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They each day were in each other's homes. They just, they lived life together. They had everything in common. It wasn't communism. 
But their attitude was, we're such family that if you need something, mine is yours. You need a pickup truck, and I got a pickup truck, my pickup truck is yours. I've actually, over the years, had great relationships with, with men who have pickup trucks, and every now and then you need one because you need to move some stuff. Well, they need to borrow something I have, and there are certain guys that I know that if they borrow my car, they're going to bring it back to me washed and full of gas. Many's the time I've called them and said, hey, my tank's a little low. Do you need my car at all or anything right now? <laughs> Are you plugged in? I know you ladies do it. You're an encouragement to each other, aren't you? You need each other. Can't even imagine living in this world without having a bunch of other peculiar people around. People that understand. I mean, I, I look at you guys and I think about the fact that We've even taken trips to go look at the Christmas lights at Disney. A bunch of us piled into that 15-passenger van. Still one of the highlights of, of my... It wasn't even church, but it was church. I could go on and on. I could start telling stories about each of you, and you could tell stories about us. Folks, that's what we need right now. And in these days, we need to do it more. I'm not trying to make a sale, but if you can go on the Bible cruise, those are amazing times. To just, you've been, you just, you spend the week on that ship studying the word together, eating together, because we all eat together in the same dining area and we see each other. There's a lady in the church in, in Galax that every time I see her, I hug her and I tell her she's my Puerto Rican girlfriend. Because while we were in one of the forts in Puerto Rico, she was a single lady and uh, we had her join me, our family to go and we just hung up, locked arms and we toured the forts in Puerto Rico. Whenever I see her, I think Puerto Rico. We did Puerto Rico together. Paul says, in, for this reason, verse 7, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. But then he says something interesting, and I'm just going to touch on this, and we'll come back to it next week. He said, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's interesting. He's bragging on them. He said in chapter one that their evidence of salvation was their salvation was real because of the evidence of their turning from idols to the serve the living and true God. And they didn't even need to tell anybody about what God had done there. Word had already spread through Macedonia and everywhere else. And he's been telling them, hey, praise the Lord, your salvation's real. And we just got word and we're so excited. And what encouragement you are to us. And he says, and we want to see you face to face some more so we can help you where you're lacking in your faith. Now, most of us would say, why you got to bring it down? He's not. He's actually encouraging them. And I want to encourage you in the same way. Your faith isn't where it's supposed to be yet. We're, we're in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're in that process of coming to know him more and more, right? Anybody here got the full understanding of Jesus? You're in full faith? Me, me neither. Actually, the more I study, the more I realize how much I didn't know. He's getting bigger and bigger. The more I thought he'd get smaller and smaller and more understandable. He's getting bigger and bigger. In Luke 17, we'll wrap up with this one tonight. Luke 17, look at verses 5 and 6. 
And then we'll come back, back here next week. Luke 17, look at verses 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's interesting. They said to Jesus, increase our faith. Jesus said, if your faith was the size of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Now, most of us would think that he was saying they really had very little faith, but that's not what he's saying. See, their question was and their prayer was, Lord, give us more faith, right? And a lot of you have thought, I wish I had more faith. Well, I want to say something to you nicely, and I'm going to illustrate it from Scripture. You don't need more faith. You actually have plenty of faith. You need a bigger God. You don't need bigger faith. You need a bigger God. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. You can double check later on in Scripture. Matthew 14, Jesus is walking on the water in the storm. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter has enough faith to get out of the boat in the storm and literally walk on the water. Has he ever done this before? No. But Jesus said, come, and Peter has enough faith to walk on the water. Now, after a period of time, the scripture says he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He starts looking at the wind and the waves, and he starts to sink. Jesus grabs him. Listen to what Jesus says. Oh, you of little faith. The dude's got enough faith to step out of a boat? And Jesus says he has little faith? Hold on to that. Chapter 15 of Matthew, that's chapter 14. Chapter 15, Jesus is in the area region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman has a daughter with a demon. She cries out, Lord, help my daughter who's got a demon. Jesus ignores her. And then the disciples say, she's driving us nuts. Jesus says, it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. The woman says, I don't, I'm paraphrasing here. She says, I don't care if you call me a dog or not, because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs from Paul from the children's table. You're so big that even if I just have a crumb, that'll be enough for me. And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Isn't that interesting? Peter had enough faith to step out of a storm, out of a boat in a storm. He's told he, doesn't, he has little faith. The woman says, I'll take a crumb. And she's told she has great faith. Now you go to Matthew 17, and we see the same thing that is said here. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move, and it'll be moved. Now, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, and if I held one on the tip of my finger right now, you couldn't see it. They are unbelievably tiny, almost like smaller than a tick. So what was Jesus saying? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. What he was helping them, helping them understand is this. He says great faith or little faith is not determined by how much faith you have or the size of your faith. Great faith or little faith is determined by the size of your God. You understand? If your God is big, you have great faith. If your God is little, you have little faith. Why did Jesus say you have little faith? Because Peter took his eyes off or put his eyes on the storm and the storm got bigger. Jesus got smaller and his faith shrunk. The woman says, you're so big and powerful. If I just get a crumb, that'll be enough. Her faith was huge. Folks, you don't need more faith. I've, I've used this illustration before. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. You go to the doctor. He writes you a prescription. You can't read what he wrote on that piece of paper. You can't. It's, it's hen scratch. 
He could have written, have fun killing this person. You don't know. You take this piece of paper from someone and you don't know what it says. You hand it to a person in a room at a pharmacy with enough drugs to kill you 70,000 times over. Someone you don't know takes a piece of paper you can't read, goes into a room, puts some pills in a bottle, comes out and says, put these in your mouth once a day. And you do. <laughs> you got plenty of faith. You don't need more faith. You need a bigger God. And so what Paul was saying is this. We want to come and we want to spend some more time with you, helping you get to know Jesus more. And the more you get to know him, your faith will increase. That's why when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he and the Sadducees, he said this. He said, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Paul said, I want to come share with you more about how awesome he is. That's actually my heart. I'm not an evangelist. I'm going to share the gospel because the gospel is all through the scriptures. But my heart is to come alongside of people like you, Christians, who know the Lord and love the Lord and know the word. But I want to take you deeper. I want to keep feeding myself to get to know him more. And I want you to get to know him more. Isn't that what Paul said? Forgetting what's behind, straightening toward what's ahead. I press on to the goal of the high calling, the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. And those of us who are mature, we're going to think this way. And so let's keep encouraging each other all the more as the day gets closer to Jesus coming and getting us. And how do we do it? Let's keep talking to each other about how awesome Jesus is. And I want to keep encouraging you. And next week, we're going to come back together and look at some more about how to increase, increase their faith. And I hope you guys will help me in that way because I'm in, there have been many times over the years, someone will say, you know what you said? God showed me this and I thought of this. And I'm like, dude, I'm stealing that. That's been a help to me as well. I love you. We'll see you next week.